Welcome back to yet another episode of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. And you will find me every Monday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on AdrenalineRadio.com. And hey, if you're bored and you just want to look at a boring studio but sometimes some cool stuff on the tablescape, go to the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook page and you can watch our live stream because our station owner, Nick, likes to play with toys and likes to do things like that. But if you need to hear more of me and more of our exclusive interviews and movie reviews, you can go to, you can find me in print and online in the U.S. and abroad 24-7 and, of course, always on BehindTheLensOnline.com. Net, a very uh, an interesting show today. Another timely and topical show. Uh, last night, uh, last week, we talked again about skin. Um, given the timeliness of the issues of white supremacism and and the shootings that happened uh, in Dayton and El Paso uh, this week, Patrick McGee is going to be back with us. You may rem- our regular listeners may remember that Patrick was with us. A couple months ago, talking about his documentary on the opioid crisis in Florida, South Florida, American Relapse. Today, he will be joining us to talk about his newest documentary, The Deported. And yes, it is about exactly what the title tells us, the immigration and deportation issue. Also joining us today, two new fi- a, a new filmmaker and an established German actor, uh, let's say Raven and Fred Bruckner are going to join us to talk about their new film, Snayland. And I got to tell you, it's it has a it neo it has a noir inspiration. But one of the great things about the film is the cinematography and location. It's shot on location in Germany and in Iceland, and I could just sit and look at that film all day long because Iceland looks beautiful. Uh, And it's set during the 24-hour daylight periods. So uh, we're going to get into that with Lisey and with Fred. Um, Some great films are out right now. And unfortunately, the show is only an hour. So I can't even get in all the interviews uh, to run for you. But you'll find them all popping up this week on BehindTheLensOnline.net. A beautiful film to take a look at is Light of My Life, written and directed by Casey Affleck. It stars... Uh, along with Casey uh, Anna Panowski. Beautiful, beautiful film. It's basically a two-hander, a father and daughter. And uh, the world has, uh, women have been wiped out. Girls have been wiped out. And this is a story of a father protecting his daughter as they try to make their way in this uh, new world order. Uh, Anna is a joy as uh, the character of Rag. Uh, most of you may know her from the uh, Hulu series, Pen15. Uh, I can't recommend it highly enough. It came out on Friday in, it's very introspective, quiet, deliberate, and thoughtful. Came out on Friday in limited. Look for it. Hopefully it is going to go wider. Uh, we also had open up this this weekend, the Peanut Butter Falcon. See it, see it, see it. It is the best thing that Shia LaBeouf has done in quite a while. And the breakout star of the film is Zach uh, Gutsagin. He is solid gold. And it's it's basically a 21st century Mark Twain, Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn uh, tale. So that's another great one that is out limited. Check that one out. Hopefully we're going to get to talk about After the Wedding shortly. But there's another big one that came out this week. Oh, and don't forget, General Hospital fans, Perception, Wes Ramsey's film, uh, is out now on digital. Find it, find it, see it. You're going to love it. Uh, also, another one that is available on VOD and digital is Derailed. Interesting film. Uh, it has a lot of... I've interviewed the producer and the director. Those interviews will be out on BehindTheLensOnline.net sometime this week it has some great production values in some areas in others it definitely speaks to a low budget no budget micro budget film it's definitely worth a look-see uh definitely worth a look-see and with more money i can't wait to see what 
the uh, what the director, what Dale, and I'm looking for Dale's last name. I can never, uh, Dale Fabriger, uh, to see what he does with some more money uh, with a film. It's a very ambitious film, but it does have some. It, it's an interesting story and uh, quite enjoyable. Uh, next week we're going to talk about the film I've been waiting for, 47 Meters Down Uncaged. Uh, the premiere is tomorrow night. I'm covering that. I've already interviewed Johannes Roberts and one of the stars of the film, Sophie Nalise. But we'll get to them later. But right now, the other big film that came out this week, uh, number two at the box office behind Hobbs and Shaw, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. I love this film. It is not a terrifying jump-out-of-your-seat scary, but it's fun. It rises and falls on some terrific moments of edge-of-your-seat tension that ratches up with each story that's told. Because those of you that are familiar with the Scary Stories book, books, actually there are three of them, there are all these individual stories within the books. The book's by Alvin Schwartz with the incredible, incredible illustrations by Stephen Gamble. And one of the beautiful things about the film is the stories from the books that they bring to life in the film that are interwoven and taking place in a haunted house. Um, the stories come to life, and the ones that they have picked are some of the most iconic gamel drawings uh, and tapping into uh, prosthetics uh, and VFX um, wizard, Mike Hill, for one. Mike did all the prosthetics and designs, for, and his department did all of that for The Shape of Water. Uh, you know these creatures... So, shall we call them, look spectacular. Guillermo del Toro produces. He originally was going to direct it himself, but then somewhere along the line it got passed off to a fave filmmaker of mine, not that well-known in the United States, Andre Ordeval. Uh, Andre is a Norwegian filmmaker. Uh, I first met him back in 2011 with his film Troll Hunter. That film was also based on Norwegian lore and stories and Andre had to tackle the the visual imagery so that it would comport with the the images and the illustrations to these Norwegian tales that had been told for so long and that were so iconic this is the same challenge with scary stories to tell in the dark and the with the visuals and Absolutely stunning, stunning work uh, that Andre and his team have done. Cinematographer is Roman Osen. Roman, uh, you may know his work best for Pride and Prejudice, Mr. Majorium's Wonder Emporium, uh, Autopsy of James Drangio, and an interesting film, Labyrinth of Lies. Uh, so to see Roman step in here with the visual texture and the tactile sense that we get uh, plus the use of color and the and the absence of color, but celebrating black on black on black and making use of negative, negative space in the lensing really adds to the tension. Marco Beltrami does the score along with Anna Dubridge, Drubich. It's beautiful. I absolutely love it. And then Dave Brisbane da, is the production designer. And one of the challenges of this film was creating a uh, house in 1868, 1968. The film is set in 1968. Nixon is running, Vietnam War. If that isn't a horror combination right there, I don't know what is. But I sat down and I talked to Andre the other day about scary stories, starting with, all right, now I can't find my note, Pam. What am I starting with on scary stories? The script. We're starting with how Andre, because the script, he worked on it. The uh, Dan and Kevin Hageman, who are best known for Lego Movie, wrote it along with Guillermo. So it's a collaborative of effort. But let's take a listen to Andre's thoughts on the script. Did you have any input at all in with the script as to which stories would be told from the scary story from book one? No, absolutely, but I mean, of course, the script was developed for right. Guillermo to direct himself at that point, and he developed the story from his own idea. Mm -hmm. So there was a certain set. They had gone through a whole process way before I was involved. But, at, you know, when I got it and I was chosen to, to direct it, there was a process of 
touching up the script to make it a shooting script, there was more actually of uh, we eliminated one big story um, called High Beams that was part of the script that I received that we had to take out because we changed some aspects of the yeah, some of the character mm-hmm. relationships. So that was kind of a thing we actually ended up taking out. Um, but of course, no, I've been tweaking with the writers and with Guillermo, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And uh, the script, it's really, I wondered how they were going to take scary stories and integrate it into a cohesive film. And they've done a beautiful job by setting it up Halloween night. And you've got a group of friends. Uh, and I've got to give a shout out to Zoe Coletti who plays Stella, and she more or less is, she's the brains of the friend operation, let me tell you. Um, but they f- go into this ha- haunted house, and she's a bookworm and, she, and a writer, and she finds this book. And it is the book written by Sarah Bellows, and it is scary stories. And Sarah Bellows has been dead for a century, uh, but everything in the book is allegedly written in blood. So all of this gets tied together as the each one of the friends, a story about them starts to unfold. A new story is getting written, and no one can figure out how that's happening. But, of course, there's blood, there's death, there's all kinds of fun stuff. But one of the important things, once you've got something like Scary Stories and you have a working script that ties everything together so beautifully, then come your visuals. And as I mentioned, staying true to Stephen Gamble's illustrations. So, of course, I had to ask Andre about the visuals. And something that you so beautifully have done, uh, and I know that Mike Hill came in on a couple of these. My, my love for Mike is, un, is undying with his work. <laughs> no, he's amazing. Um, the true, the authenticity that you pay to Steve Gamble's original illustrations in the book just makes my heart sing. Oh, that's great. How important and how challenging was it for you to maintain that homage, that authenticity visually to the book? Oh, it was crucial. I mean, it's... um... With Trollhunter, we did the same. I mean, I had to, you know, basically use these drawing, famous drawings mm-hmm. in Norway that the entire Norwegian population knows so well. <laughs> and it was exactly the same process where it comes down to you have to depict the creatures the way they know them, mm-hmm. the audience knows them. But then we have to make them come alive, and then it becomes about motion, it becomes about sound, it becomes about do you hear them breathe? Do you, is it all wooden, like Harold? You don't. I didn't want to hear. I just wanted to be a piece of wood, if you will. And then... You had the pay lady, for example, who is very subtle and has uh, this benign and scary presence immediately as you see the drawing and how the hell you've managed to do that. And then, of course, you have geniuses like Mike Hill to, to be able to portray that physically. Mm-hmm. And um, Guillermo was obviously so uh, amazing to you know, have as a mentor for me in that right. whole process where he would be um, knowing exactly how to get the best out of mm-hmm. Mike and Norman Cabrero and uh, Spectral Motion and everybody. Mm-hmm. And of course, in creating those visuals, production design comes into play. But if you listen, Andre said made a very key mention about the sound design also. And this is one of those instances where sound design interlocks with the production design because of the sound effect that needs to be achieved and with going through an empty house a hollowed house a house that may have wind going through it that where sound is blocked by walls and corridors or it's tweaked because of the, of the type of old rusted ventilation um, so production design and sound design really went hand in hand with scary stories. And the result is really striking as you watch the film. And it's something that I don't often get to see and hear in concert with each other. Uh, But that is exactly 
what has happened here. And up, do we have? Well, why don't we? We'll hold off on Andre talking about the sound design, and we will go right to. We have both of them. Okay. So we are going to now shift gears quickly here. Uh, and welcome, welcome. Let's say Raven. And is Frank there too? Yes, it's Lise Raven. And Frank Bruckner. Hi. Hi, Lise. Hi, Frank. How are you? Welcome, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting us. Well, I have to say, I didn't know what, how you were going to pull off a noir-inspired film in Iceland at the peak of, where it's light, 24 hours a day. Uh, but you did it, and you did it beautifully. So often a film of this nature, you think we're going to have the shadows, and it's going to be darker, and it's going to be nighttime. We're going to get that kind of feel. But here, everything... It's well lit, it's bright, it's natural. Everything is in the open, which makes the secrets that Frank is digging for even more uh, more secretive, actually, and more surprising. Because it, with all the light, it's a direct contrast. You've got a great dichotomy going on there. Um, where did the idea for this story come from? Mm-hmm. I was working on a noirish landscape in the Meadowlands, and it was kind of a traditional noir. And I just was getting my introduction to Guys, we can we can we can barely make out what you're saying. Can you hear me? That's better, much better. Okay, all right. So. Initially, I was preparing and writing and rehearsing a film that was more of a noir, traditional noir, and set in Meadowlands areas. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't getting my pre-production time in. And I've always said I want to do an apocalypse now and take people to an island for two years and not let them leave until they've made the film. <laughs> and... So I was Googling uh, Iceland, I mean, Island, and somehow Iceland came up. And I said, well, there you go. There, I- Iceland's an island. And then I had been collecting these little brass bees that I was, I was using them as an excuse to not work on the pre-production of the other film. And I said, okay, Iceland, bees. And all of a sudden, I had a great metaphor for the film we made, which was the idea that Iceland's bees don't have all the problems that bees have around the world, colony collapse disorder, mites, because they isolate them to mm-hmm. protect them from invading species, as the female character said. And I wrote up an idea and asked Deborah Goodwin, um, who's my co-writer and co-producer, if she wanted to work on it, and a couple of months later, we were in Iceland writing for the location. Wow. So, of course, I, we got to ask Frank, you know, because he's he plays Frank in the film, and uh, he kind of is the invading species into, <laughs> into Iceland. How, <laughs> how, how does it feel to be the invading species who is trying to uncover what he believes are, are great secrets that the beekeeper has. I think um, Fred, the name of the character is Fred, actually, Fred. Um, is, is kind of used to being the invading species. As, <laughs> as a journalist, you know, as an investigative reporter, he has to dig deeper and be, in a way, invasive um, because he doesn't know what, what else he might discover. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was, um, I mean, working working there was was great for <laughs> for a number of reasons, and one of them was that I think none of us ever experienced um, twenty four hours of sunshine or twenty four hours of daylight, mm-hmm. um, and uh, none of us experienced the summer 
um, around 50 Fahrenheit. Wow. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes above, which was quite refreshing, I have to say. I would have loved to stay longer. Um, but, yeah, at some point we had to go back. Oh, well, you know, something I love about your performance, Frank, is that it's very observational. And then the way the camera is used, generally pulled back in a wide shot, so we really feel isolation of Fred as well. Forget about the bees and the beekeeper being isolated. Fred is also very isolated in his pursuit as an invading species of journalist. Um, but Absolutely. I, I love what is conveyed visually. You, ju- you can just, you stand there and we see the majesty uh, and the beauty of Iceland surrounding you. And you look so small, yet you can be so dangerous. And I really love how that, how that comes, to, comes to the forefront and plays out in the film. Thank you. I think that was that was Lisa's um, idea. Um, my idea for the character was he was as as overwhelmed and as small compared to to that uh, superb and, and um, great uh, uh, scenery in, in Iceland with all these big mountains, the ocean, and so on. So, and he, he, even even back in Berlin, I think he felt like an outsider. He doesn't. He was not part of the in crowd. He was sort of um, yeah, an isolated species, even back home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I'm curious, um, Lisa, how what you went through, how you came up with your visual design of the film, because it is very metaphoric the way you're using camera angles and your framing in particular. Um, you're very judicious in very, very, very few close-ups. You've got some some mid shots, some two shots. And, of course, in, in car scenes, you have no choice. But for the most part, you really use the topography and the landscape of Iceland as a character in the film. So I'm curious how you came up with that visual design. I thought a lot about it. I, in the last film I did, which was also set out, outdoors, I worked in a 2-3-5 aspect ratio, so I worked very wide because... I wanted the landscape to be heavily involved as a character. And because I still wanted to show the majesty of Iceland, Mm -hmm. I wanted the character to feel a little bit more claustrophobic, especially because it's a small town. Mm -hmm. I worked in 185, which is slightly tighter, Mm -hmm. um, but still allows us to see the place. And still gives us, I mean, if you go to Iceland to make a film, we don't want it to be all close-ups, right? We might as well stay in, in the Netherlands. Yeah. But um, I think close-ups are, are punctuation. And they're really, you go in for a close-up when it's emotionally appropriate. And, and then you go in for a close-up with a really shallow depth of field when it's even more critical. Mm-hmm. So I think of shots as being very specific, just just like words, mm-hmm. really specific words. So we use really specific shots. And yeah. we brought all of the equipment with us. Um, so we also had to think in terms of exactly what we need <laughs> and how much time we have. So the economy was built in. What kind that makes sense? Oh, it makes that makes perfect sense because um, you obviously you don't want to have to be flying stuff over and bringing it in with excess undue weight and baggage and more things you have to worry about losing and breaking. Um, yep. So what uh, were we the, had a, Go ahead. I said we have a we have a very tiny crew. We had a crew of six. Wow. Plus myself and the talent. So we had a. A cinematographer, a first AC, a script supervisor, a sound guy, sound recordist, um, a first AD, and then the assembly editor who worked assembling, um, downloading files and assembling at night. Mm-hmm. 
so that we could see and you know what we had. And she was putting it together as we went along. So we had a tiny, tiny footprint. We yeah. also um, had, and that was very intentional because we were in a very small town, and I wanted us to to step lightly and and not to leave big messy footprints. Mm-hmm. Not to be an invasive species, as we all know, film crews can be. Um, yeah. Were there any because of the fact you're shooting and this is it's daylight, twenty four hours? Did that present any kind of issues or problems for you, or on the flip side, any benefits in terms of your cinematography and capturing the right light? because when I first understood that it was going to be light 24 hours a day, I think in my mind I imagined, you know, eight hours of magic hour. So a, <laughs> a special kind of light that would um, that we'd be able to work with during the, the evening or nighttime. And I wasn't prepared until I got there for the fact that it was going to be noon. <laughs> all channel, all day, all night. And the, that only towards the very end did we start to get the kind of colors in the sky you associate with just before sunset or sunrise. Um, oh my! And God. we kept to a really normal schedule: twelve on, twelve off. Mm-hmm. Because I think otherwise everyone would have lost their mind a little bit more than they did. Mm-hmm. Um, but. I think the biggest challenge we had was trying, was with the, um, the car rigs, trying to keep the sunlight from reflecting off of the um, front windscreen. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I think other than that, the fact that it was light all the time allowed us in editing to move scenes around a little bit if we wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, and it gave us a little more play that way. But we always knew, and the characters, the actors always knew, what time of day or night it was in the story world, mm-hmm. which I think made a difference. Um, Frank's character, Fred, is not able to sleep. And so his performance had to reflect and um increasing lack of sleep, so to speak. Um, we, I, I have worked with Frank and Emily before, and I thought it would be very funny to name them Fred and Melanie, which was just a step away from their real names. And then, of course, I had to keep my ears really sharp to make sure that neither of them said or Emily, um, mm-hmm. and I don't think I'll do that again. It was very <laughs> funny to meet. It immediately used to be funny the first time someone messed up. So I'm I'm curious for Frank. Um, how well do you take direction from this director? Because you know you, you the two of you are paired off screen. So I'm curious. Do you do you listen? Do you take direction well? Absolutely, yeah, because um, Lise knows exactly what she's doing, and she has a great way um, with, with actors um, to, to explain what she wants from the character. And um, she also listens to us. If there were scenes, I, I, I don't remember specific scenes right now, but there were, of course, moments when um, we were not, we had questions. We, were, we, we thought, hmm, I don't know if, if the character would act or would react that in that way. So we discussed this, and she 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 heard she heard me, she heard uh, the other actors as well, and uh, helped us guide through uh, through, through the performances. So we came up with ideas, of course, mm-hmm. um, with many ideas that we had for the character, but still we were left with with many questions and. Uh, we knew from, from our previous work that we could trust Lise. Mm-hmm. She would take her time, and she would not let go um, until she was satisfied with what she saw. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I'm curious. Was the part? Were you always going to play the role of Fred in this in the film, Frank? Uh, yes. Yeah. What is it about the character of Fred that speaks to you as, as an actor? Um, what I find interesting is that he is—he's trying to to get back to to a position in in life that makes him happy. Right now, as I explained earlier, he's one of um. You know, he he doesn't have any 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 fixed points in his life. He he lost his reputation by self-inflicted uh, wrongdoings uh, in the field of journalism, and he he's trying to come back. And again, he's he's depending on on other people, especially on, on his editor, to throw him you know the breadcrumbs of of job and so on. In a way, he is. He he is he is. I don't know the exact um, image here, but he is. He's like a frog. Is it a frog in, in the milk? You know that who's trying who's trying to to stay afloat by wiggling with his with his um, feet, and all of a sudden the milk turns into better, and he succeeds, and and so on. That's that's how I I saw him in in a way as. As a leader who's trying to stay afloat, who's trying to survive, mm-hmm. and well, in the end, we don't know. Right? I mean, he's still alive; he's still living, you know. <laughs> but I think that was very interesting. Oh, was something um, to, some... to, to portray a a man some... uh, like him, who's not the who's not the great um, hero in the first place, you know. He gets who gets all the things done easily. I find that very interesting. Mm-hmm. Also, his relationship to um, to his editor, who's a woman, mm-hmm. and to um, Melanie, you know, the the, mm-hmm. the woman who he thinks is hiding a secret. Mm-hmm. His relationship to to both of them uh, is is very interesting. In a way, he's dependent on them, and I find that very interesting too. You know, something that I love um, that you bring to the character of Fred is also we see where you basically you're having a crisis of conference having a crisis of conscience as to what to do the more he gets to bond with just a few people in the town the more of a quandary it becomes for him as to you know does he want to keep digging what does he want to do should he stop and you convey this tacitly with your eyes, with your posture, with your shoulders. And it's really interesting to watch that as the film progresses and as Fred gets deeper and deeper into what into what he thinks are these secrets he's going to uncover. Yeah. I think he becomes really um, vulnerable from, from the beginning to the end of the film. He becomes, if you will, he becomes smaller and smaller, too. Mm-hmm. And um, because in, in, when he first buys Python, he's, he's bragging that he's working for a big German newspaper. And um, more and more he looks, or he felt, or I felt as as Fred, more and more I felt um, forlorn <laughs> in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Lisa, I, I'm curious for you as a filmmaker. Was there anything particularly challenging about bringing this film to life, and in ter- and even in terms of getting financing for this? Um, you're now out on the festival circuit. You're about to have your world premiere Saturday. Yay. That's exciting yeah. to finally to have a world your world premiere. So I'm curious if there were any real challenges that you faced in bringing this story to life. In getting this film made, uh, in terms of financing or any other aspects, including the travel logistics uh, and shooting in Iceland, you know, a lot of people are filmmakers get reluctant and they only want to go to the same uh, well-known film-friendly locations uh, that get used and used and used. Iceland does not get used and used and used. Um, 
by notable the, the big filmmakers. So I'm curious if there were any challenges and logistical challenges that you faced here. Um, I think it's always challenging to make a film. It's definitely always challenging to get financing uh, to make a film, especially for independent filmmakers. Um, you know, and I always try and keep in mind um, that the challenges of doing something like this um, are, they pale in comparison to things like trying to get your family across three countries on foot to safety. You know, I, I try and keep a little bit of reality in my mind, um, you know, that it's, it's a privilege to have the responsibility, but it's the challenges of making a film are definitely a first world problem. <laughs> so I try not to complain. But that being said, I think I appreciate a good challenge. And I don't think of the word no as being the final, um, the final determinant when I want to do something. So um, I decided that I want to do it. I decided that I wanted to do it. I found the people that I wanted to work with. I said I'm going to do it, and I figured out how. And because there was a very small window of time to, to do all of the pre-production, I did it. You know, that meant I scheduled the flights for people. I took care of arranging the carnet, which is the document that you need to take equipment out of one country into another and then the reverse so that you don't get taxed um, any place. Um, mm. So, you know, I booked the truck, I, I booked everything. And because of that, I was also able to make decisions that fit in with the script, meaning this is what we need to bring in order to shoot this. This is how many people we need in order to get here or there. Um, so... In that regard, I was a producer, line producer, coordinator. Mm -hmm. And so the challenge was only finding enough hours of the day to do it. And <laughs> I loved learning how to do these kinds of things. Um, I have to say that the challenge that, um, that I found most stressful was probably making sure that everyone felt well in a 24-hour-a-day sunlight environment, but trying to keep a very small crew on track when the environment was um, definitely posing a challenge. I felt like that kind of challenge was exactly what I wanted for the actors. Mm -hmm. um, I've always felt that Actors perform well when the physical circumstances dictate their performance. And that's not to say that I would shove actors out on an ice flow and say, <laughs> act. But you might. You, you might. I might. I might. But I would make sure they were safe. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But when um, when you made the... Um, one, one thing I would like to add, I Elise is not only as a person very courageous, she, she's the most courageous filmmaker I know. And because of that, um, she, we would try, we as actors would try to, um, to, to make become reality what she wants from us, even if it is a dancing on an ice floor. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't been there yet, but maybe the next film. Um, but but I think that you know it's always. It's always difficult. There's always challenges. But I, like the best day off the set is never as good as the worst day on the set. Mm -hmm. I really love working with actors. I really love making films. And so um, the challenges are a part of it, and, and they're rewarding. They're rewarding, as long as no one gets hurt. Uh, yes, that that's you know uh, that's number one. Example, she was in the uh, in the um, in the ocean. She went uh, up to her navel and, and to the I think it's the Greenland Sea. It's very cold there, 
Um, because she she knew it would create a great image. She knew about the necessity that her character would do that. And she was a little bit of, uh, she was a little scared to do that, but she did it. She's a tough cookie, too. <laughs> and in, actually, in Powell, I made this film. I was always afraid of bees, even though, you know, I, I think they're lovely and I love honey and I appreciate the fact that we get to eat because there are honeybees. Mm-hmm. But now my sort of escape plan is to move to Iceland and become a beekeeper. <laughs> because it was so fascinating to meet a woman who ran the apiary and to work with bees. Mm-hmm. Well, that and the fact you incorporated that into the character of Melanie, I just love that because you imparted some fun information there that, you know, most of us don't know. And I always like that in a film, even if it's a narrative film and if it's a fictional film, when you get those little nuggets of, hey, fun facts to know and tell, I always like that. And, and that's what, that, that jumped out at me with this film. I'm so glad. I, I like to be able to talk about something bigger when I make a film. That's the last film I made, Kinderwald. I wanted to talk about um, immigration and prejudice against immigrants. Um, it was about German immigrants in the mid-1800s. And, and in this, I wanted to be able to talk about these, but I did not want to make an eco-drama. Right. So the metaphor is perfect. Um, and, and other than just that, I've always been fascinated with voyeurism as a subject matter. So I was able to weave that in as um, a story element. Mm-hmm. And um, I was very, very lucky in being able to cast two really talented and really, really generous Icelandic actors. Um, Mikinger Christensen and Ickner um, Rassen, and they brought something to the film that was authentically Icelandic, because I didn't feel like I could come there and make an Icelandic film. I mm-hmm. had to be centered around what I knew, which is a stranger in a strange land. Mm-hmm. But they were able to bring the Icelandic elements they and the people in the town who played some of the secondary characters, um, and I didn't, I didn't worry about um, creating my own vision of Iceland. I, I just let them portray Icelanders. Mm-hmm. Well, you did an amazing job with this film, and as I said, you've got your world premiere at the Vale Film Festival. So you go from Iceland yeah. to Vale, Colorado. You know, keeping it in in that snowy center. Uh, Saturday, yes. this Saturday, the seventeenth at one p.m. Encore presentation Sunday at four thirty. Yes. Anybody in Vail should definitely check out the festival and check out the film. And do you have any other upcoming festival slots yet? At a, at... I can't say. I, I I I want to say the answer is yes, but I can't say yet. So, um, but we're on the international festival circuit now. So, for an international film, it's it's going to take a, a journey around the globe. Ooh, nice, mm-hmm. nice. Now, as festival mm-hmm. as festivals pop up uh, for you, will you be posting them on the film website? Yes, we have um, our film website is. Nylandfilm.com, S N A E L A N D film.com. And we're on all the usual Instagram, Twitter, we have a Facebook page. Um, and at the very second, I'm free to shout it, I will. <laughs> so, well, um, if anyone's interested, they can see the trailer on our website and read a little bit about the crew who are amazing and the cast who are also incredible to work with and you get to see how beautiful iceland is yes yes Yes. i i uh, watching your film having seen a couple other films that were done in iceland but watching this film i have to disagree with my eldest nephew who uh, coming back from germany he stopped in iceland to sightsee in iceland and apparently his reaction is yeah it was nothing special um i beg to differ (laughs) with my nephew uh (laughs) (laughs) 
It is definitely something special. Lisa, thank you. Frank, thank you. Thank you both so much. And I hope as you get, I hope you guys will come back on the show is, you know, once you get distribution of the film, which I know you're going to get, I'm sure you're going to get with this one, but I, I would love to have you guys back on the show. Thank you so much. We'll be back. <laughs> oh, guys, thank you, and I'll talk to you again soon. Great. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. And that was Lisa Raven and Frank Bruckner talking about Snayland, world premiere at Vale Film Festival. Okay, I don't know what has happened to Pat McGee. I think this happened last time, too. He called in very late, Pam. Let's take a short break, and we'll come back, and we'll go back to Scary Stories. Hi, it's Olivia Munn with my shelter pets, Frankie and Chance. Say hi, guys. When I adopted them, I discovered that they both have incredible personalities. Chance's sole purpose in life is to love and to be loved. Frankie is a little bit of a scoundrel and always entertaining. They're a little bit of a lot of things, but they're all pure love. Adopt pure love at theshelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council, the Humane Society of the United States, and Maddie's Fund. A powerful threat calls for a greater response. Not tomorrow. Not in a few years, but right now. Some battles must be faced together. Cancer fighters stand up to cancer every day, and you can be part of this battle too. Visit StandUpToCancer.org to learn more. Together, we can save lives. That's right. Push the button, Pam. And we are back. This is Behind the Lens, and I am Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. Uh, and you just heard from two wonderful filmmakers, Lisa Raven and Frank Bruckner, talking their new film, Snayland, which has its world premiere at the Vale Film Festival this weekend on Saturday the 17th. And I know tickets are still available, so... You can go to snaylandfilm.com to get information on the fest or go to Vale Film Festival and find out about tickets in your if you're in the Vale area. So before our special guests call, and I don't know where Pat McGee is. I am sorry, people. I do not know. Uh, I have no phone call. I have no text reply. I have no email answer uh, from the publicist. So uh, we're going to go jump back to scary stories to tell in the dark. And before Lisa and Frank called, we were talking about uh, sound design and production design and how they are interwoven, interlocked in this film. Uh, it's not something you see that is as that often or as predominantly important as it is here in Scary Stories. Because of the very nature of the haunted house design, um, it's crucial. Sound design becomes crucial so that the sound is authentic and believable when navigating corridors, walls, vents, and things, all those things that go bump in the night. So let's take a listen to what Andre Ordeval, director of Scary Stories, to Tell in the Dark, had to say about sound design and production design. Glad you brought up the sound because the sound design here is a crucial element. And particularly Carol, we hear the wood. Yeah. It's like we hear it being pulled off of a rusted nail mm. so that he can move. And that is very chilling. And then every sound within the bellows house, you hear everything. And, and we get that reverberation, that echo of an empty house. So even we in the audience aren't sure where that sound is coming from. And it works so beautifully yeah, as great. a layer of storytelling. Mm. How challenging... What, because you've got this this scape here of this house, which in and of itself is gorgeous. And you're creating these, you're creating 1898 and 1968, and the humor of 1968, I think, is just... 
you've got the metaphor going of the world is going to hell in a handbasket <laughs> with Nixon and the Viet- Nixon elections in the Vietnam War, and you know the horror of that pitted against the horror of these stories. It's just no, that's great that you see that oh we my had. God. That's something I fell in love with as well in the script, and it was so joyful to be able to play these elements up against each other. Oh, but you know how you know it's so crucial with the design, working with the production designer for that house in terms of your soundscape as well. What kind of challenges did that did that did that present for you? No, I mean it was. Um, I mean, it is something about creating an authentic house that looks really, you know, uh, in like it belongs in the 1890, uh, in 1898, but still doesn't look too pristine, so it doesn't become like a set. It was a yeah. very fine balance between making it look obviously new, but not overly new. And then, um, no, I mean, uh, it, it was a, it's a big thing to, uh, to design that place. But what was amazing, we found this house out in... Uh, two and a half hours out of Toronto that is was just a stunning house and we went inside and it, it was we couldn't really film in there but we used it as a template for how we designed the, our set mm-hmm. because the interior was all shot on a set but the it was just an um, the the staircase was pretty much like that all we did was kind of we made the hallway longer and and we wanted to use the upstairs and uh, the downstairs and it was just um uh, fun. I mean, I, I lo- also. I, but the thing is, I love working with sound. I think that's one of the most fun aspects of filmmaking is to tell a story with sound and to mm-hmm. sit and just listen to sound do stuff. And that also comes back to the stories in the books. A lot of them are very much based in sound. People sitting, listening to mm-hmm. feet coming, and uh, whether it's a corpse or it's something, you know. And there's a playfulness to that that I really love. Well, and. With a film like this, it always casting an ensemble like this is so crucial, so key. And this is a standout younger cast. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, Zoe Coletti is phenomenal as Stella. Uh, and as part of this group of friends, we've got Gabriel Rush, who is fantastic. Uh, as Augie, very straight-laced, very prim and proper. Uh, but then on the other hand, Austin Zager is so annoying as Chuck. Um, so there's this great balance that's happening with the kids that have been cast. And of course, for a veteran performance, Dean Norris, you can't go wrong with him. And he plays Stella's father. And there's a a really sweet and nice father-daughter dynamic between he and Zoe Coletti. But of course, I had to ask Andre about casting this film. And I've got to tell you, Zoe, without Zoe, you wouldn't have a story. No, I agree. How, how difficult was it for you to assemble this cast of these, you know, these young guys? I mean, because I've seen for a long time um, a couple of the kids that have been around for a while. Mm. But to see them here and then have Zoe really take, take the lead here... A strong female protagonist, perfect timing for it. Um, you know, how difficult was that casting process to put these, this group together? I mean, Zoe was actually not difficult. I was sent her um, uh, like a self tape she did, I believe, of her playing that part, and it was just like I immediately just forwarded to everybody on this is the one. We, this is the one we just and we kept looking I mean we kept interviewing and having auditions for weeks and weeks but I knew it was going to be her all along um, but then we had uh, you know all the other no I mean it was a, most of them actually stood out quite early mm-hmm. uh, Austin and, and Austin both of them and Natalie Ganshorn she did an amazing audition she just embodied everything we wanted uh, and had such a natural fun playful way of doing her character um, and uh, and Austin Abrams was so menacing it was like I remember him walking up to me during the audition and he was in character and he totally terrified me and I was like okay that's you know I love that from an yeah. actor it was so bold and bold indeed 
But of course, since Troll Hunters, uh, Andre has, which was a small budget uh, endeavor, indie endeavor. Um, since then, he's done a couple shorts. He did uh, in 2016 the Autopsy of Jane Doe, which if you haven't seen it, see it. But now here he comes with scary stories to tell in the dark. You've got Guillermo del Toro behind you. Um, you know what? What is the, what is this experience like for you as a filmmaker? For any filmmaker, that all of a sudden you jump from the small a small indie like like Troll Hunter or even Autopsy of Jane Doe and now you you've got a film that Guillermo del Toro is behind. So I had to find out what Andre th- had to say. I've got to ask you Andre, what? It's been a while since Troll Hunter. What has this experience been like in comparison to Troll Hunter? You've got Guillermo behind you on this one. English film, North American, global release on this one from the start. What did you learn about yourself in the process of making this film that you can now take forward into your future films? I don't know, that I'm able to handle it. That I'm able to keep communication good with everybody. It's a, you know, it is a complex set. You have a studio with their expectations, investor companies, uh, and... No, no, they're wonderful. They're investing tons of money into something I'm creatively responsible. They're trusting me with a bunch of money, so it's fantastic. Uh, and, um, and uh, of course, Guillermo and Sean Daniel and uh, Miles Dale. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a big uh, group of, of really experienced people who really know their craft. So, you know, you're a little bit terrified walking in, but it's been such... I mean... It's been such a wonderful experience with everybody, uh, from Terry Press, head of the studio, to um, to all the producers and all the teams and all the people they brought together. Uh, and I've just tried to, I don't know, be myself. And I think it seems to work to a degree so far. I mean, I've, I've really enjoyed myself on this movie, and but that's really thanks to everybody else, because it could have been so difficult to make a movie. I, you hear horror stories about filmmakers coming into Hollywood and it's all a mess and da 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 not at all I mean and, and this film has a lot of moving parts to it yeah it does and also a lot of people who put a lot of effort into it there's a love for this there's expectations it's a big property in a way Scary Stories Tell in the Dark is a is a cultural phenomenon in America so there's a lot of pressure and I'm a foreigner so them to trust this with me is, uh, and also to portray you the US in 1968 the time period that I only know about peripherally in a way I wasn't even born then um, so no it's been a very trusting experience and I've had a wonderful crew around me and the proof is in the pudding when you see scary stories to tell in the dark it's in theaters everywhere now and for those scary story fans out there of the book uh, if you want to know the things that were cherry picked for the film, story of Harold, the big toe, the red spot, meet Ty Doty Walker, and the dream. So that gives you a little hint. And then a few other little surprises in there. Uh, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's scary good fun. It truly is. And I'm already, I'm set for a sequel now. One more f- a film I want to quickly mention before we go today. I mentioned this back in the fall after the Animation Film Festival. A beautiful, beautiful film from Salvador Simo, the uh, Bunel in the Labyrinth of the Turtles. It is, it's based on the true story of the shooting of Las Herdes Land Without Bread by Luis Bunuel. Uh, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous animated feature. Um, and it is coming out this week on Friday. As I said, it is written and directed by Salvador Simo. And see it. Um, it it's the animation alone, the style, the styles of the animation involved. Uh, we get some touches of Salvador Dali in here. Reality crosses dreams. Really uh, a visual wonder to behold. 
with striking. I love, there's a lot of hard edge imagery here. Uh, a lot of uh, lines. There's not, it's not, if you're looking for a, something that looks like a Monet, that this isn't it. This is closer to a dolly or something with a strong pen and ink. Uh, so, Bunuel and the Labyrinth of the Turtles is coming out this Friday. And next week, uh, I am I know I had played excerpts of my interview with Salvador Simo back in the fall. I'm going to pull out that interview and, and bring some new new excerpts for you next week. That is all the time we have today. So, until next week. I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 